0: Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men whom I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word. It is our desire not just to understand it, but to live it. And I pray by your spirit you would uh, transform us by the power of your word. Uh, You have said... Uh, Jesus said, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. And Father, it is our desire to grow up into you in all things. And so we pray for your blessing, your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in this chapter, we are going to be seeing David in one of his rare moments of anger. Up until this chapter, he has been in such control of his anger that we might have guessed that anger would never get the better of him, but it does. And uh, later on in this chapter, he almost engages in murder, not just of Nabal, but of Nabal's entire household. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at the negative side of uh, anger. But in the introduction, I want to emphasize that not all anger is sinful, for example, Mark three five says that Jesus looked around at them with anger. Uh, Psalm 7.11 says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now that verse that compares God to a good judge implies that any judge worth his salt is going to be angry at a murderer. He's going to be angry at a pedophile. He's going to be angry at somebody who has robbed widows of uh, what they have. Anger is a destructive emotion designed to put in check sin uh, by God. It's a destructive emotion, but it can be a godly emotion, and uh, it has several purposes, one of which is to alert us to the fact that our goals, hopefully righteous goals, have been obstructed. It's uh, designed to keep us from becoming apathetic. There are other purposes as well, and... um, we tend to get angry when our expectations and goals are not met, or at least when things are not as they should be according to our thinking. Uh, of course, since our goals and expectations and our opinions can be sinful, well, that means that our anger can be sinful. And since uh, our, even a righteous anger, at least it starts off righteous, can have sinful motives mixed in, And uh, since uh, it sometimes can have illegitimate ways in which it's expressed, uh, even righteous anger can become sinful. So I think it's important that we understand exactly how anger works. If we understand that, it'll help us to uh, better be sanctified in this area of our lives. In the New Testament Greek, there are two words that describe anger. The first word is orges. And it refers to the swelling up of emotion, uh, especially the emotion of displeasure within us. It's primarily the feelings that we get from those hormones, those chemicals, you know, exchanging inside of us. And animals can have these hormones. They can have orgies. Uh, You attack a female bear and her cubs, she's going to attack you in anger. Uh, You attack a dog, and the dog is going to attack you. Uh, there's going to be these emotions that that come out even in, in an animal. But unlike humans, animals seem to only do this when they're attacked or what they consider their possessions are being attacked. And um, it's self-preservation. Humans can have orgy swelling within them even when a principle of politics is being violated or some uh, politicians being unfairly attacked or there's a... You know, a lady that's been uh, mugged or God's name has been blasphemed. And uh, it's something that God put even into unfallen Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve should have used this anger to oppose the blasphemy of Satan. God gave Adam the responsibility of tending and guarding the garden and he should have used this anger to motivate him to get rid of Satan. Now, the other Greek word used for anger is thumos, which refers to the breaking forth of that emotion, that orgase. Animals almost always break forth in anger uh, when the orgase hormones are being stirred up inside. So for animals, there's no division between orgase and thumos. When you got one, instantly you're going to have the other coming out. Humans, however, have the capacity to control that breaking forth of anger. That's the thumos. In fact, they have the ability to even control the thinking that led to the orgase in the first place, those emotions within. There is no need whatsoever for a human to just instinctually break out with anger, Thuma, simply because he's got emotions raging inside, okay? Uh, Humans can control both, and it's one of the things that distinguishes us from the beasts. And they need to control both to ensure that the anger is neither destroying ourselves through clamming up or destroying others through blowing up now anger can be a good thing if it keeps you motivated keeps you from being apathetic but it can also be an incredibly destructive force uh, proverbs twenty five twenty eight says if you're like one of those beasts who has no control over that anger then you're like a city whose walls have been broken down That means that you are totally at the mercy of the enemy, Satan. He can use that anger for his own purposes. Other Proverbs indicate if you're like that beast who cannot have a God-centered perspective in your anger, then it's going to be detrimental, not helpful. Now this morning I can't give you a whole theology of anger, but I wanted to at least give you this much to be able to distinguish between the animal impulse of anger and God-given anger. James 1, 19 through 20 are two verses you really need to memorize. Every one of us struggles in this area, but it, 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 it doesn't forbid us to have anger, but it says this. Let everyone, so this is not just, you know, God's admonition to a few of us. It says, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Only God's wrath produces righteousness, and it's pretty rare that it's the Spirit of God who's stirring up our anger. Uh, If you look through the Scripture, the vast majority of references to anger are to sinful anger, and the reason that it tends to be sinful for us is that this emotion of anger tends to to kind of shut off our thinking, our reasoning processes. Study after study that's been done both with animals and with humans indicates that even visually we tend to narrow things down almost to a tunnel vision when we're angry and we can't see much of anything except for what we're focused on in our attack mode. Everything else becomes uh, kind of peripheral. Your reasoning powers become uh, very limited and that's why it's critical to control your anger and to think Uh, before you allow your anger to motivate you to do something. By the way, police reports, it's incredible when you read the police reports and see the stupid, irrational things that people will do. Let me just give you one story. It's the report of Diane Fitpaldi. Now, the short story doesn't make any sense whatsoever because the short story is that she's setting the table and her husband yells at her, the fork's supposed to go on the other side. And, uh, she gets so incensed with his micromanaging of her that she goes to the rental store, rents a pneumatic, uh, tire forklift, drives it through the wall of the, uh, of the house. And according to the neighbors who are witnessing this, she is pounding that forklift up and down on the table and says, so you want the fork on the right side? Here's a fork for you. (laughs) She was really ticked off. He was scared. He was off in the kitchen while she was trashing the whole house with this forklift. Now, if you went to that place and you saw her outburst of anger, you'd think, what is wrong with this woman? She's insane. There's something absolutely crazy about her. All this guy said was, hey, the fork goes on the other side of the table. That's true. He said it in anger. He said it disrespectfully. But it was such a trivial thing compared to what she did. But you know what? Her anger didn't start right at that moment. There was a whole series of events, because this guy was micromanaging everything that she did, that led to irritation in her, and that irritation led to the underlying anger and then finally erupted into rage. Now, she tried to justify herself, and everybody's scratching their heads, even with the justification, but she's still so mad that it makes sense to her. She said, Oliver is a horrible neat freak, and he drives me nuts about keeping everything tidy. Oliver yelled at me about where his fork was supposed to go, and I figured I'd fix it with a forklift. (laughs) Well, to some degree, that's exactly what was happening with David. It's almost exactly what was happening. He's going to murder all of the males in the household of Nabal. Why? Because he has not been offered any hospitality. This is an irrational anger on David's part. Remember, and let me give you a little bit of a a background, because it didn't just start right here. It started all the way back in chapter 23. We saw last week that... Uh, David and his men had uh, uh, gone after the Philistines because the Philistines had come through this area, stolen everything from all of the citizens. David went after them, conquered the Philistines, returned all of the flocks to their uh, the natives uh, of Judah, and Nabal had not so much as given a thanks to David. So there's probably some irritation already at this level. Uh, I'm sure that there were plenty of other people who were very thankful to David and probably gave produce, and these men were dependent upon it. Where else are they going to get food to eat? They they don't want to go in terms of charity, so they're trying to serve the people, and they're trying to bend over backwards, and yet Nabal does not thank him when he continues to uh, serve these people. Nabal doesn't give anything in return. So I'm sure there is some irritation level that's been increasing. Remember that the root word, uh, for orgase indicates a swelling. There is this, this gradual increase that has is happening within people in terms of, of anger and, and irritation. So here's Nabal returning, uh, good for evil. And, uh, And and David's trying his hardest to do the opposite. He's trying up until this point to be gracious and godly despite the fact that Nabal has not done anything good to him. So there's a sense of which David has gained a great deal of victory over anger uh, prior to this chapter. Now, on this feast day, we saw last week that he thought even a Nabal's going to help us out if you consider four different things. And the first one I've already mentioned was that he had rescued all of Nabal's sheep. The commentators assume that this is true. All of Nabal's sheep returned them to him. Uh, so Nabal really owes him in a sense. Uh, secondly, he has been guarding the, the sheep and the flocks, not just of Nabal, but of all of the surrounding people. Thirdly, The law of God commanded rich people to bless those who were poor on feast days. This is a feast day. And then fourthly, just eastern hospitality uh, would have uh, commended that. So even the biggest cheapskates would do it to save faiths. But Nabal not only fails to do so, he insults David. And it's just too much for David to bear. His orges anger rushes out into Thumos anger. His reasoning powers become clouded. He commits himself to a forklift kind of irrational anger that would have totally ruined his reputation if Abigail had not come along and intervened and stopped him from doing what he had planned to do. So that's the big picture of the chapter as a whole, okay? Now, in the four verses, beginning at verse 10... What I want to do is I want to dig down into the details of anger. I want to look at the anatomy of anger so that we can really understand this and try to be godly in this area. And we're going to look, first of all, at the arrogant contempt of Nabal. Verse 10. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Now, he pretends that he's never heard of David. This is absolutely impossible. David is the guy who was a hero of Israel, who had conquered, who had killed Goliath, you know, who had led his people in victory. And the scriptures indicated all Israel knew about this. It's absolutely impossible that Nabal did not know. In uh, chapter 18, it says that David's later exploits in the army were so great, so sacrificial that it says, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Then that chapter ends by saying, Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So commentators point out that David is so well known, and even his Nabal's servants are talking about him, they know him, that it's absolutely impossible that Nabal did not know who David was. This is slam dunk, clearly an insult. This is an insult from the mouth of Nabal. Why did he do this? We're not told. It may have been because he sensed that no one respected him. Later on in this chapter, we see the servants didn't respect him. His wife didn't respect him. And he probably has this orgase anger simmering under the surface, and he wants to lash out at somebody. And actually, based on what the servants say, he's probably continually lashing out at everybody. This is just the norm for Nabal. Whatever the case, this attempt to belittle David appears to have gotten even these young men angry. Second insult in verse 10 is this. There are many servants, and that should actually read slaves, there are many slaves nowadays who break away each one from his master. Now, even though he does not say it explicitly, he's insinuating David is a runaway slave. It's clear Nabal is upset, he's bitter, perhaps he's even envious of uh, of David's reputation, and he puts him down. And this is how so many arguments get started. It's a put down. Or it's maybe some inflammatory statement, or it's something that's just off mark, and it insults the other person. They respond in kind, and before you know it, you've got this big flamethrower argument going on, and rankling bitterness that follows. The third insult is in the first part of verse 11. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men, etc.? He's implying that to give David food would be to rob food from the mouths of the servants. Now, this is an absolutely ridiculous statement in terms of Nabal's wealth. He would not have had to rob his servants of anything. He had plenty. This would be like a person who's earning $500,000 a year, Uh, saying to some poor person who's asking for some food, oh, no, I can't afford it. Uh, Of course uh, Nabal could afford it. It's, It's a ridiculous statement. The fourth insult is that he knows nothing of the men who had saved his property, and give it to men when I do not know where they are from. Now, if you're the men who have been guarding Nabal's property, this is an insult. If you are the men who have sacrificially protected this person without charging anything it hurts okay it was just going to make you feeling upset this is returning evil for good and then the last thing that would have grated on these men is how Nabal is so full of himself uh, there are seven references to me myself and I all that Nabal can think about is himself he cannot look at life except through his own eyes And the people who have spent their last few months doing exactly the opposite, thinking about the interests of others more than of their own interests, this is highly offensive, highly offensive. So let me read verse 11 again and emphasize those personal pronouns. So uh, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? I mean, you can see exactly what's going on here, and you can understand why David and his men would have gotten upset. This Nabal was a piece of art. Okay, hopefully you're getting the picture there. Now, immediately you can see the responses of anger in these young men. Verse 12, "...so David's young men turned on their heels and went back." And I think you can, in your mind's eye, picture what that looked like. I'm turning on, This is not just simple turning around. This is turning on their heels. This is body language that shows they felt highly disrespected. And it was such clear body language that Nabal should have noticed these guys are angry and immediately apologized. Certainly the servants later on, just from what's gone on here, they say, whoa, are we in trouble? They're, they're going to Abigail and they say, something's going on here. Okay, so there's body language uh, that is happening, but people who are full of themselves rarely see it, or if they do, they really don't care. They don't care. You're wiser than that, (laughs) and so you need to be sensitive to the body language of other people in your interactions. This is one of the reasons why I recommend if there is any potential of conflict that you talk face-to-face because... Uh, emails you cannot see the body language now there is a place for emails there's a place for writing letters to make sure you are not saying anything offensive you've got everything written out and even when you're going face to face write out what you're going to say face to face but you know if they read your email you're not going to see the the downcast countenance you're not going to see the the flare in the eyes you know or the flushed uh, cheeks and those are the types of things that oh man i've offended this person and you can instantly rectify and apologize rectify the the damage that uh, that you have done too many broken relationships have resulted because people have not properly read the body language They were oblivious to the fact that they had offended the other person. I doubt very much that Nabal was oblivious here. I think this was obvious enough. Uh, In fact, my suspicion is Nabal relished the fact that he hurt these guys' feelings. Uh, That's the kind of guy that Nabal was. We're not told, but that's my suspicion. Now, a second complication in the anatomy of anger is when the offensive language is repeated. This spreads the anger. Verse 12 goes on to say, And they came and told him all these words. Now, of course, they needed to tell David. They were the messengers, right? So what they're doing is is perfectly uh, okay. But maybe they didn't need to say these words in front of all of the 600 soldiers that were with David. Um, But word for word repetition before David ensured that David responds with exactly the same anger that they have. They probably said it with a degree of emotion themselves. And it would have been hard not to. But this brings up the whole issue of how anger and then bitterness can spread through the ranks of a family, through a church, through a business. And it's spread by repetition of offenses. Now, if anger can be spread through legitimate repetition of words, it can certainly be spread through gossip. Now, this morning, we're not going to deal with gossip. We'll just leave that thing aside. But even when it is legitimate to be angry and upset, we need to be very careful about who we talk to, how we talk about the issue, and what we say. Uh, It can make the difference between solving the problem or exacerbating the problem. Now, David was surrounded by uh, men who had a much harder time controlling their emotions and their anger than David did. In fact, uh, later on, Uh, We're going to be seeing a number of times where David has to cool their heels, you know, and tell them not to do what David's attempting to do right here, take revenge into their own hands. And I'm sure that these words said in front of all 600 men got all 600 men really ticked off because they've put in a lot of work over the last few months. And in the midst of all that emotion, it would have been harder for David to make the right decision. That's the point. And so it really is important that we learn to be slow to speak, as James words it, until we can figure out who should hear it, what they should hear, in what context they should hear. Words spread anger. Sometimes they're appropriate, sometimes they're not appropriate. I mean, with abortion going on completely unchecked in America, we should be spreading anger with our words, right? Uh, When the government is robbing from citizens with taxation and giving it to fund what the Bible would consider criminal behavior, we should be angry. But in our personal interactions with each other, especially with believers, what we say with our words many times makes us end up with regrets. Okay, Regrets of what we, what we have just finished saying. Uh, one famous journalist, Ambrose Bierce, said, "'Speak when you are angry, and you will make the best speech you will ever regret.'" <laughs> now i'm not getting on these men's case here i think what they did perfectly it was perfectly okay i'm just illustrating the fact words do spread anger sometimes words are like spreading gasoline around and then uh saying well i it wasn't my fault somebody lit a match over here i just spread the gasoline okay next problem we see is a desire to get even instantly escalates into wanting to do more than get even. Take a look at verse 13. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. Now, why does he want them to gird on their swords? Well, let's take a look down at verses 33 through 34, and uh, you will see. And this speech that he's giving here is after Abigail has convinced him that what he has done is sin. It's wrong. Verse 33, Blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. Now, is that justice? No. He admits he would have been hurting Abigail, an innocent person. Uh, He would have killed every male in the camp. That is not justice. That is blind rage. That is a forklift kind of a rage that doesn't make any sense. Even Nabal didn't deserve to die. What he deserved to have happen was for David and his men to say, fine, go find your own protector. We're out of here. You know, we'll find people who will appreciate our services. But this is the way anger works if it is not controlled. Anger is incredibly dangerous. It's a fire. Now, fire is useful. I'm not saying fire is not useful. I'm saying if you don't contain it, it can burn down an entire town. And I have seen families ruined through anger. I've seen churches ruined through anger. And again, this is why it is so imperative that we be slow to wrath. We need the time to think through whether our offense is a righteous offense whether our goal is a righteous goal, whether our reason for getting angry, that's the motives, our righteous motives, and whether the situation that we're uh, expressing our anger in is an appropriate situation. Let me give you an example. When Jacob's daughter, Dina, or Dinah, however you want to pronounce it, was raped, Everybody got very angry, and Levi and Simeon got extremely upset. Very legitimate anger. I don't think we question that anger at all. But when they killed every man in that city for one man's rape, it went way beyond what the Scripture uh, allowed. And so keep this principle in mind. Anger always makes you want to do to that person more than they have done against you. It's just the way that anger works. Anger is a fire and it grows if you do not contain it. You must always think through what's the appropriate expression of anger. So here's, here's the kind of questions that David should have been asking himself. First of all, do I have the right to be angry? And I think we'd have to say, yeah, David had the right to be angry against Nabal and on behalf of his men. Uh, you know, this is such an ungodly man. I think there could be a righteous anger there. Second question. Why am I angry? Am I angry for the Lord's sake? Am I angry on behalf of innocent people? Well, he might have been able to say yes to a degree on on that question, but it was certainly mixed in with ungodly motives as well. I'm sure David would say, Well, I know that I've had sinful motives here. I'm angry because I was insulted. My pride was hurt. I've not been given what I thought that I deserved. Can I demand a gift from Nabal? No, I really can't demand a gift from him. But let's say that this was a righteous motive. Let's just assume for the sake of uh, of the argument, this was perfectly righteous. He had contracted for services and he hadn't gotten paid. What do you do then? He still needs to ask a third question. Third question is, what should be my goal? Should my goal be to take revenge into my own hands? And the answer is no. Should it be to kill every male of Nabal's house? Obviously, no. What should be my goal? If it was a salary issue, his goal would be to take Nabal to court and to get the services or the money or whatever it was that was owed him. Now, here's the problem. He's an outlaw. He can't use the courts, right? So even assuming that this is a right motive, He is providentially hindered from going into the courts and to get his money. So what does he do in a situation like that? Well, if providentially God has made it impossible for you with your anger to destroy the problem and to get resolution, you have to relinquish your anger to God. You have to give up the fact that this person has robbed you to God and not dwell on it and not allow it to fester uh, within you. Now, I've thrown in the, David, by the way, does later learn to do that, and we'll see that in the future, but I've thrown in that salary question because I'm sure some of you had this question in your mind. Well, what do you do if it was legitimate? But let's go back to the text, and I think in the text we see it was not legitimate. It wouldn't have been legitimate to even take it to court. What would a court have said to David? Uh, Did you make a contract with Nabal? Uh, No. Did Nabal ask you to rescue his sheep? Uh, No. Did Nabal ask you to guard his sheep over the last few months? Uh, No. Well, if you don't have a contract, you really don't have anything in court. Okay, that's exactly what what, what a court would have done with David in this uh, particular uh, situation. So the only legitimate goal that David could have had would be to go to Nabal and say, hey, from now on, you're on your own. We're not protecting your sheep anymore. Uh, And the Philistines are coming, by the way. Um, but uh, we're out of here. We're going to work with people who appreciate our, our services better. Nabal would probably say, fine, see if I care, you know. It wouldn't have helped him at all. But you have to think through. By the way, that is exactly what he does later with Abigail. He says, okay, we're, we're, we're out of here. But you have to think through the motive, the goal, the standard, and the situation, not triperspectivalism, perspectivalism okay? All four have got to be thought through. And that's why James absolutely insists you must learn to be slow to anger. Now, the main thing I want to get across under point C here is that thumos anger almost always ends up doing more than it should if you've not thought through these issues. So it's a very, very key critical point. It's what makes anger so dangerous. Now, that same phrase that I read shows that David made a snap decision. It says, Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. He made a snap decision in the heat of the moment, and once he committed himself in front of those 600 men, it would have been very hard to back down. Very, very hard. And this is what has gotten so many people into trouble. They get mad at their boss, and in the heat of the moment, they say, Well, fine, I'm quitting. And once they've said, I quit, it's pretty hard to reverse that, isn't it? And so they bounce from job to job because of their anger, because they could not control their mouth. And uh, people might say, well, this really was not a snap decision because David's irritation has been going on for quite some time. That's true. I agree with that. But the point is the decision of what to do about it was snap. It happened right now in the heat of the moment. And snap decisions of anger have brought ruin to so many people. Somebody decides because they've gotten upset with something, "I'm leaving the church," and once they've said that, very hard to reverse it. They say, "I'm getting a divorce," and again, their pride makes them want to keep moving down that uh, that 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 line. Uh, in the story that I started with, the the husband had been irritating the woman with perfectionistic micromanaging for a long time. She'd been angry for a long time, but when she made the decision to rent that forklift, she had a whole hour before she got back to the house. That was plenty of time to calm down. Why did she not calm down? Why did she continue on with the irrational decision? It's because she made the irrational decision in the moment of anger, and the anger motivates you to carry through. On your decision. It's just the way anger works. That's why I say, don't make snap decisions when you're angry. Because that anger will motivate you to follow through. It'll follow through for quite a long time because there's pride and all kinds of other things that are wrapped in there. So hold your tongue, pray about it, offer up thanks to God. Refuse to make a decision until you've carefully thought through motive, goal, standard, and situation. Now let's read verse 13. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Others took up David's offense. Now, of course, they were just as injured as David was, so it was very easy for them to take up the offense here. But this happens even when people have not been injured by the offending party. You know, your friend has been hurt by somebody else, or at least claims to have been uh, 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 hurt or uh, offended. And so what happens when they talk with you, you take up the offense as being your own offense. And before you know it, the whole church can be poisoned. Every church needs servants, like the servants we read about here, who are peacemakers. Every church needs Abigails who are peacemakers, and it's so important that the rest of us not take up offenses too quickly that other people have. I've just seen devastation happening because without checking out the facts, they get offended and then they get upset with the other person if they had taken the time to investigate, really understanding what the situation was about and actually evaluating, is this something I should even be hearing? Is this something, I, an offense I should be taking on? And then taking the time to look at the motive, the goal, the standard, the situation. Is this legitimate? Is this biblical? It would not have happened. The last thing that we see in the following verses is that anger can lead to murder. There have been many cases of friends You know, somebody murdering a friend following a hot argument. In fact, this past Friday, somebody told me, I don't know if it was in anger or not, but, uh, you know, somebody shot his brother. Uh, It can happen. Spouses have killed each other uh, in, in anger. First example of anger in the Bible was Cain's. And Cain got angry that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, did not accept his sacrifice. And this is the interesting thing about that. Cain gets angry at God and takes it out on Abel. What's with that? And yet I think you recognize this happens all the time, doesn't it? Husband's really upset and mad at the boss. He comes home grumpy and he's snapping at his wife and his wife gets upset because uh, he's grumpy with her and what have I done? You know, I've been trying to be a good wife. And then she takes it out on the kids and the kids don't have anybody to take it out on. They kick the dog, right? This happens. And uh, I remember back in, I don't know, first, second, third grade, that I I had been beat up so many times. And this one time, I was just so exasperated, so mad after having been beaten up, that I picked on a younger kid. And it it brings shame to me, even to this day, to think, you know, of the meanness. I, I, I didn't hurt him real bad, but, you know, I kind of picked on this kid. And yet, the more I think about it, even though it wasn't a huge thing that I did, uh, nobody would have thought too much about it, it was the same downward spiral that Nabal was on, the same downward spiral that David was on, where innocent people get hurt because of somebody else's offenses. And again, this is one of the reasons that makes danger ever so dangerous. Um, Listen to God's warning to Cain. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? That is a question we always need to ask ourselves. Why am I angry? With Cain, it was because his pride had been hurt. It was a sinful motive. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. He likens, God likens sin to a beast crouching at the door, ready to pounce on you and to devour you. And he said, Cain, if you don't learn to rule over your anger, that anger will destroy you. And it did. It not only destroyed Cain, his whole life was destroyed. It literally destroyed Abel. So he goes on to say this. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field But Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. This is the end result of anger that is not controlled. This is the end result. It is a destructive force. Now, God designed anger to be a destructive force to destroy sin in ourselves and to destroy sin in others and to destroy sin in society. But what do we do? We turn it around and we use it to destroy people. We destroy ourselves if we clam up and we hold this anger and don't resolve it. We destroy ourselves with arthritis and cancer and ulcers and all kinds of physical maladies that come out of anger. And we destroy others by blowing up harsh words and sometimes even fists. And we abuse the spirit of our children. And we, we hurt relationships. And so it is a very destructive force, and we need to be aware of that. Now, very quickly, let me conclude with some further lessons that we can learn from Nabal and David. And first of all, from the life of of Nabal, we should never exaggerate. This is exactly what Nabal was doing. Now, we're not told why Nabal was bitter or angry, but with a name that means fool, which is exactly what uh, Nabal means, you can guess. There's probably a whole history of these irritations that have been coming up in his life. And there is this tendency when irritation fuels anger and anger fuels bitterness and bitterness blinds us to the good that's in other people, that we begin to exaggerate their faults and we exaggerate with the accusations that we bring into their lives. And if you have been a, had a tendency toward exaggeration that flows out of anger, you need to repent of it to God. You need to repent of it to others and say, please hold me accountable. I don't want to put this on. Ephesians 4, 25, I put in your outlines there. In connection with destructive speech and anger, it says, put off all lying. Okay, exaggeration is lying. Second, build up, don't tear down. Ephesians 4.29 says, when you get angry with a fellow believer, make sure there isn't a single word that comes out of your mouth that's not for building up. Here's how it says. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that's building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Every word that came out of Nabal's mouth was the exact opposite. He had nothing constructive to say, and it seems like he had a habit, based on the servant's conversation, that he had a habit of tearing down, destroying, ripping apart. If you do that, automatically, your anger is evil. It is sinful. I don't care how righteous your anger started out. It becomes an evil anger the moment you violate Ephesians 4, verse 29. Third lesson from Nabal, try to look at life from the other person's perspective. Try to see how the other person is going to perceive your words. But secondly, try to understand uh, why it is that you've upset this other person. Maybe they have a legitimate gripe. Now, in the heat of the moment, it's so hard to be sympathetic, to look sympathetically at this What this guy is, uh, why he's upset, but it's a sign of maturity. It's something very important. Emotions tend to close down those reasoning powers, but you need to control your anger and ask yourself questions like this. Do they have a legitimate gripe against me? Lord, I don't see it, but if they have a legitimate gripe, please open my eyes to see it. Search my heart. Second, am I at least partly in error? Show me, Lord. Are they angry over the content of my speech or the way that I have spoken? Or is it maybe the situation that I've spoken? Maybe they've had a hard day. Maybe they've uh, lost a lot of sleep. Why are they angry at me? Mabel was immature in that he only knew how to appreciate his own situation. Now, Ephesians says, be sensitive to timing. Proverbs says the same thing. Uh, a good word fitly spoken in due season, how good it is. Um... Nabal was completely missing the spirit of the season. Now, let's quickly look at some lessons from David. The first lesson, I'm not going to belabor because I've already dealt with it, but it's critically important to see anger as dangerous. Even legitimate, godly, righteous anger is unbelievably dangerous. It's fire that you're carrying around gasoline and around dynamite. So even though it's a good, (laughs) it's a very good thing, Treat it as dangerous. Do not just minimize your anger. And this chapter illustrates so well how dangerous it is. Next lesson. We must not allow our position to make us careless in controlling our anger. Now, Nabal thinks because he's such a hot shot, he's such a wealthy person, he can get away with harsh words. David thinks because he's the commander of 600 men who always obey his words, he can get away with murder. And let me tell you, just because you are a parent does not give you the excuse to blow up in anger. When you do, ask forgiveness of your children. Make sure you get those things right. Now, we've already dealt with application seven. Application eight is that we must learn to submit our expectations to God's lordship. And again, it's usually because our expectations have been thwarted that we get angry. So we need to ask ourselves, hey, is it God? himself, who has absolutely closed this door. If it is, I need to submit to his lordship in this situation. Uh, one time when the, the uh, umpire, Babe Pinelli called two strikes, I believe it was two strikes on, on Babe Ruth, the crowd booed, and Babe Ruth turned around and said, there's 40,000 people here who know that the last pitch was ball, tomato head. And the coaches braced themselves to have Ruth, you know, ejected from the game. But uh, the umpire, Pennelli, uh, simply said, maybe so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that counts. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't care how many people justify your anger. You can get all kinds of justifications. The only opinion that counts is God's, okay? And we need to ask God, Lord, is my anger righteous? I don't want to justify sin. Do not justify it with your umpire God. A ninth application could be made when you contrast David's non-angry responses to Saul with his angry responses to Nabal. This is so fascinating. Saul had been so much worse to David than Nabal was. So much worse, and yet he doesn't get angry with Saul, and he does get angry with Nabal. What's going on? Well, again, we see this all the time too, don't we? I've had in, in, in counseling people who say, But I can't help it. Every time she looks at me that way, I get angry. You know, I I can't help my anger with my wife. And yet, you know what? That same guy, when his boss has been meaner than snakes to him, is able to bite his lip and not say the very things that he would be tempted to say with his wife. It's a choice, brothers and sisters, You cannot say, you're not animals who say, oh, I can't help it. Anytime I have uh, Orgase anger, it's automatically going to go up into Thumas anger. No, you are not animals. God has made you so that you can control your anger. You can contain your anger. Now, it may take a while to, to gain the victory and to conquer it, but it is a choice that you have made. Abraham Lincoln once said, most folks are as happy as they make their minds up to be. Now, those of you who have are just upset with me right now because I've uh, quoted Abraham Lincoln. Gotta work on it. (laughs) But I I think Abraham Lincoln is exactly right. It is a choice that we make. You are not an animal that has no choice but to erupt in thumos when you have orgase. God himself says, control your anger. And and this sermon really gives the principles and how. Point 10 is actually a guess. My guess is that David had allowed resentment to Nabal to build between chapters 23 and chapter 25, but it's certainly consistent with his behavior here. And here's what I I want you to think about. If you don't learn to give your expectations to God when the irritating behaviors of others cannot be changed, you've left yourself a weak point in which anger is going to erupt and explode. Okay? And so... Uh, Those irritations, those are the telltale signs, ooh, okay, anger's not very far away. I need to take remedial action uh, right away in dealing with this problem. So don't let irritations continue to simmer. Sometimes you need to confront the person who is irritating you and try to resolve it. But you know what? My general, even though that's legitimate to confront people, my general advice to you is get tougher skin. Too many Christians are so thin-skinned, they're constantly confronting everybody about everything. And so my recommendation to you is to learn how not to get irritated. And I can give you all kinds of homework on how to do that. I've got a big fat uh, file on dealing with anger. But a simple place to start is Re- Romans chapter 12, middle of the chapter, verse 9, through to the end of the chapter. And it gives you all kinds of things you can practice every single day returning good for evil, not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. That chapter, if you practice it regularly, eventually you're going to find it's almost impossible for people to irritate you too much. It it gives you a sense of of, of victory, an incredible sense of satisfaction. So that's my recommendation to you. It's conquering the reactions of your own heart that's far more important than conquering your friend. So see irritations as a warning sign that anger is not too far away and you need to take appropriate actions. Now, it may be that you have to confront. Sometimes that's necessary. Uh, Point 11 uh, has already been dealt with. Point 12 has been dealt with. Uh, Point 13 has been touched on. But it says that if anger has gone to bitterness, sometimes it takes daily trips to the cross of Jesus Christ uh, before that bitterness is uprooted don't get discouraged just keep at it keep at it eventually you will gain the victory a uh, ten Boom uh, told of her struggles with forgetting a wrong that had been done against her now she would forgiven this person but it still bothered her it, uh, all day and all night she had two sleepless weeks she kept thinking about the wrong that this person had done to her and finally she just cried out to the Lord and said Lord I, I need your help I've got to deal with this And here's what she says. His help came in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Now listen to what the pastor said to her. Corey, up in the church tower is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. When the sexton pulls the rope, the bell peals out. Ding, dong, ding, dong. What happens if he doesn't pull the rope again? slowly the sound fades away forgiveness is like that when we forgive someone we take our hand off the rope but if we're if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while they're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down in other words don't be discouraged You're not going to lick this overnight. It it, it didn't actually take a whole lot longer before Corey eventually was able to put bitterness to rest. But as you daily refuse to pull on that rope and daily go to the cross thanking God for His forgiveness of you, His forgiveness of your brother or sister, and um, uh, thanking Him that uh, God loves him, over time those, those thoughts will cause you not to grab the rope anymore. And they'll remind you of the sweetness of God's grace and peace will come. But it takes time to get over a habit of anger. So be patient with each other as, as you see the other people not gaining control of their anger quite as quickly as you wish that they would. Be patient with that. But the last lesson that I see in this story is that sometimes intervention is needed with an angry person even if he is a godly person like David, even if he is an elder or a pastor, Okay. The hurt can sometimes be so great, the anger so great and so strong that nothing but intervention can stop the person from doing something stupid. And like Abigail, you're going to have to make sure you do it ever so humbly, so gently, so wisely, so graciously, because sometimes you're just going to add fuel to the fire when you rebuke this person's irrationality And he's just going to turn on you. So Abigail, really, we're going to be looking at what that kind of intervention can look like, Lord willing, uh, in the future. But don't reject the loving interventions of your brothers and sisters in this congregation. If David needed it, we may need it. Okay? Every one of us. And I'll be in prayer that God will give you more and more victory over your anger. And you can be in prayer that God will give me continued victory as well. And my prayer is we would be a people who are angry over the right things and yet are in such control of our anger that the righteousness of God is produced rather than just our hearts being satisfied. May God give us this victory. Amen. Father, we thank you for the life of David. Uh, Week by week, I learn so many things from your hand in his life. We thank you that your hand is in our lives as well that uh, you spare us uh, from disaster like you spared David from disaster through the life of Abigail and these other servants. And Father, I pray that as we learn to love each other more and more, to implement even the principles that Rodney spoke of at the beginning of the service, uh, Father, that you would be glorified and we would find more and more joy in our relationships in this church. Do bless this, your people, Father, with victory and anger. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.